Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise, an ongoing telecouncil series co-produced by the Peace Alliance. For more information about this series and past archives, as well as scheduling for upcoming guests, go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. This archive from October 25th 2012 features a very powerful conversation we had with Fleet Mall, the founder of the Prison Mindfulness Institute. Please make sure to check out more about transformational justice and Fleet's work at prisonmindfulness.org. Thank you and enjoy this archive. Good evening, everybody, and welcome from wherever you are Skyping or dialing into from this evening. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and you are live with Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-produced by the Peace Alliance. Before I get into uh, inviting and welcoming and introducing our distingu distinguished guest tonight, I just want to say a few words about the intention of this series. As many of you know, uh, Restorative Justice on the Rise aims to create a virtual council so that people can connect and become more deeply educated surrounding the justice conversation, not only in the United States, but worldwide. Of course, this is a complex conversation. Uh, there's so much happening right now in these times. So having this place to come together to connect and then go out back into the world, hopefully with a bit more awareness and understanding and perhaps even some tools is the intention of this space. As many of you also know, you can go to dopeace.us, which is the Peace Alliance's Ning Network, which features restorative justice as one of its main tabs to look for the archives of all of the calls that we've had thus far, councils, excuse me, thus far this year, as well as from last season. You can access those all at dopeace.us. Now the format tonight, as it is with each council, is such that we will go into our conversation with our distinguished guest. And at about the half an hour, we'll open up the line for, call, uh, for questions or comments. And would certainly encourage you to please, at any time, press 1 on your telephone keypad. Or if you have a web question, you can also submit those through uh, the email that is connected um, directly to me while this call is happening. So again, pressing 1 on your telephone keypad, you can submit a live question or, excuse me, become live on the air with us, and then we'll go into to that probably around the end of the call tonight again. Without further ado, I am so deeply moved tonight to and honored to welcome Acharya Fleet Mall to uh, be our guest speaker and, and to share with us on this council tonight. Fleet's story is profoundly moving and he of course has, was a long time and continues to be a long time student of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. He's the founder of the Prison Dharma Network which is now the Prison Mindfulness Institute. He also founded the, the Center for Mindfulness and Corrections. He served a 14 and a half year mandatory minimum sentence for drug smuggling, and he led a twice weekly meditation group within the prison system and founded and helped to start uh, a prison hospice program. In 1991, he founded National Prison Hospice Association, which launched a, an incredibly deep movement that now includes hospice programs in over 75 state and federal prisons. Again, he is a senior teacher or acharya in the Shambhala Buddhist community. He is also a sensei, Zen teacher, and Dharma successor of Roshi Bernie Glassman in the Zen Peacemaker Order and a senior priest in the Soto Zen tradition. He's written many numerous articles, including the one featured in the email invitation uh, that will also be posted at the Do Peace website, which is Prison Monk, a tricycle interview with Fleet Mall. He also has a book out uh, called Dharma in Hell, 
the prison writings of Fleet Mall. He's been on some incredible programs, including Fresh Air with Terry Gross and numerous radio and television programs worldwide. So I just want to, with great honor and humility and compassion, welcome you tonight, Fleet, and would really love to hear a bit about what brought you to this moment <laughs> in time mm. and the mm. work that you so beautifully and humbly continue to offer to this world. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Molly. That's quite an intro. <laughs> um, but I'm very, I'm very pleased to be here and, uh, and uh, uh, would like to say uh, good day and good evening or good morning wherever you are in the world to everyone that's uh, tuned in and joining us for this uh, teleconsult this evening. So I'll try to briefly just give you uh, a bit of background. Um, uh, I was raised middle class Roman Catholic family in the Midwest uh, uh, coming of age in the 1950s and early 1960s and and uh, found myself graduating from college in 1968 as a pretty alienated, angry young man and, and had already uh, immersed myself in the counterculture and youth culture and drug culture and then went off to college and, and took even a, a, a deeper dive into all that. And uh, uh, I had always been, you know, I think in retrospect, uh, what I've seen, and I think this is also can be important in terms of the, all the folks that, that we work with, um, whether they be um, people who've uh, caused um, harm to others or people who've been victimized. But for myself, I remember my childhood being a, a very early childhood, being an idyllic time where I felt very plugged into the universe and things were very vivid and real and I felt a sense of uh, connectedness within myself and with others and with the world. And... Uh, at some point very early on that went away. And whether that's kind of a normal, normal developmental process we're all start, supposed to deal with or whether it had to do with uh, the alcoholism in my family starting school, I don't know. But around four or five or six years old, it, all that disappeared and it just went to gray tones and, and I felt disconnected and, and it began a process of alienation. And, and I, was, I, was, um, I was never uh, willing to accept that and I was always searching for something. So I became really a seeker from that point on and became more and more alienated from the culture in which I was being raised and educated. Um, so uh, that journey to rediscover something real, I was always looking how to plug back in to experience something real, something authentic, something that felt real to me. And that took me down a lot of twisted roads, including a, a very intense uh, drug experimentation and you know, just sex, alcohol, drugs, and the whole counterculture. Um, but I was always really seeking something. And, uh, eventually, I left the country um, uh, really in 1972 with um, the re-election, actually in, in late 1971 with the re-election of, of uh, Richard Nixon. I, I, I just had kind of had enough and I took off for Latin America hoping just to find something real. I, I, it wasn't really drugs that drew me down there at all. It was just I had some notion of connecting with something down there and it, it took, I, I had some idea about getting to Peru. And it took me a while to get there. I spent a year on a sailboat and traveling. And, and it was a very healing time. And I was plugging into something that felt quite genuine and quite real and ended up in Peru and discovering things there. Um, but uh, it certainly didn't heal or cure me. And uh, I continued to be very alienated and, and justified in kind of outlaws versus them mentality and, and felt like society and the culture I came from was very hypocritical. So all this kind of self-justification eventually fell into small-time drug smuggling as a way to continue to live outside the system. And uh, uh, eventually, while I was down there, I heard about the founding of Naropa University, then Naropa Institute, 1974, by a Tibetan meditation master named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And I had already been trying to practice meditation on my own for a long time, and my spiritual search had kind of narrowed down on the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, even though there were only a few books published from that tradition at the time. And uh, so I knew when I saw this, I just knew I had to go there. And I managed to get up and go to Naropa uh, in Boulder, Colorado and get a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy. But I continued to keep secret a kind of uh, sporadic involvement in smuggling and also still involvement in my, my own drug abuse and, and alcohol abuse. 
Uh, I threw my involvement in the rope. I got more and more involved with Trung uh, Rinpoche in that community, but kept this other life a secret. And the two things ran in parallel. It's this kind of crazy uh, schizoid life for for uh, a while, and, and I knew it had to stop. But I, all kinds of ways in which I trapped myself into it and justified it, was addicted to it. Uh, a marriage that was falling apart, and all kinds of things. But uh, eventually, um, I did quit. But later on, I was indicted. Uh, other people who continued decided to invite me along. Um, and uh, two years after I quit, I turned myself in. And uh, I never regretted that. Um, it, I took the counsel of my teacher to stay and face it. And I was initially sentenced to 30 years with no parole. And I thought I, w- I was 35, so I thought I'd be 65 when I got out. I thought my life was pretty much over. My son was nine years old at the time, and I was absolutely crushed and devastated by what I'd done to him and to his mother. Um, I was devastated over what I'd done to my family. Um, uh, the uh, federal authorities decided to try the case in, this, in the home where I, town where I grew up, where my family is quite prominent because they would get all the news play out of it. And so it was a huge scandal for my family. I was uh, devastated by what I'd done to my spiritual community and how I'd let my teacher down, what I'd done to myself, all of that, and really hit a wall when I landed in prison. And uh, eventually I realized that if I stayed out of trouble under the old system where there was good time, I would do 18 and a half years on 30 if I stayed out of trouble in prison. Otherwise, I could lose that good time in chunks and do the whole thing. Uh, my appeal process took about three and a half years, and on that appeal, they, they knocked off one count. That reduced my sentence to 25. So then I would need, knew I would need to serve 14 and a half years if I stayed out of trouble. And it still felt like forever. Um, uh, when I got locked up, I was just, as I said, completely devastated. And I just, just radically dedicated myself to it get all the negativity out of my life and to use everything I've been given by my family and by my teacher and all the meditation training I'd had. I'd actually already been trained as a meditation teacher as well as having a master's in a contemplative approach to psychotherapy. And so I, uh, I just radically dedicated myself to reforming my life in prison. And I practiced, uh, there's kind of that Eastern expression, like my hair was on fire with that intensity and hours and hours and hours a day dedicated to practice. I started a meditation group and led that for 14 years in prison. Uh, I got a job right away teaching school. I wanted to have a meaningful life, so I had a regular 9-to-5 job Monday through Friday, uh, helping other inmates learn to read, uh, get a GED in English or Spanish, and, and, um, and also pursue college courses. That was my day job. Um, I led this twice-a-week uh, group in the chapel, which they didn't want, but I managed to get started and uh, did that for 14 years. And uh, it was kind of a continual beginner's group, but sometimes we'd have guys that would be there for a a very transitory institution. I was there for 14 years. Most people were there. It was a medical institution that had 1,000 patients, 600 medical, 400 psychiatric, and about 300 regular inmates like myself to help run the place. And so very transient population. And even among the regular population, regular what they call the work cadre, the average day was a year, maybe 18 months. Among the patients, it was three months. So people were coming and going. I was there for a long time, but we, sometimes we had guys that were in the meditation group for a year, year and a half or so forth, and, but constant kind of newcomers group that I ran twice a week for 14 years. Uh, as Molly said, I, I helped start the first hospice program in a prison anywhere with another inmate and the support of uh, two staff. We, we started a hospice program in 1987 and trained uh, prisoners to be uh, hospice caregivers and and I did that uh, uh, myself for, for the last 11 years of my time there. And I was also in charge of the training program. We brought in outside people to do the training. I also did some of the training myself because we continually had to train new hospice volunteers to keep a cadre of 10 trained volunteers. And we would be assigned to specific patients um, and our fellow prisoners and, and work with them up to they either were Dot, were released from prison or until their death. And we visited them on a regular basis every day. Um, and uh, we were kind of like surrogate family caregivers, really. And uh, so that was a big part, part of my life. I was also dedicated myself to my own recovery from alcohol and, and drug abuse and was very active in the AA and NA 12-step recovery program on a weekly basis um, and supporting other inmates in that work. Um, uh, so I, I led a very busy life active life and uh, 
and I spent uh, two to three hours a day practicing meditation and two or three hours a day studying um, from various meditation traditions and psychology and related things and, and also becoming fairly expert in uh, hospice and palliative care, studying that. So I lived my life kind of as this monk, very, very disciplined, very dedicated life for 14 years, and, and, it, and it really completely transformed me from the inside out. Uh, one of my meditation practices focused on uh, forgiveness and resolving any kind of resentments. There's a practice from the Tibetan tradition called Tanlin practice, or exchanging self for others. Any of you who've read Pema Chodron's books may have run into it, um, but it's really a way of, of, of resolving any kind of resentments or anger you might be holding towards anyone. And that was a core practice for me to really, because I, I did not want to carry any of the anger or bitterness, bitterness that most mm. prisoners carry. Um, also, that these, this path I had was incredibly helpful to me because once, once you're incarcerated, even when you're arrested, the whole process of going through an arrest, a booking, much less than spending time in jail, much less going to a court process and then going to prison, it's you're just being buried in a mountain of shaming by the whole process. And, mm. and just out of survival, one begins to, to armor oneself generally, and this is what most prisoners do, they armor themselves with their victim story, with their anger, with their bitterness, purely out of survival, which actually makes it very hard for most prisoners to turn their life around because if you can't connect with a genuine sense of regret and remorse for the impact of your behaviors, it's very hard to transform your life. But you know that's very hard to do when you're just trying to protect yourself and just survive under this mountain of shaming. Um, so I was, my, my background and my ongoing intensive practice in meditation and, and related things gave me the resilience to stay open and live in the fire of my deep remorse and deep regret. After about two years of sitting in weekly AA and NA 12-step recovery groups, uh, there was also another shift because up until that time, you know, I, still, I still justified in my mind, you know, back in the 1970s, Cocaine was very prevalent. It was considered a kind of a recreational drug by many lawyers, Wall Street people, judges, bankers, all kinds of people were doing it. And in my mind, you know, I, I kind of like I never would have, you know, uh, sold heroin or so. So I, I just justification in my mind that, you know, I was devastated over what I'd done to my son, my family, my community, myself. Um, but I still didn't have really in mind the deep impact that my involvement in drug smuggling had had on others. And um, but listening to week after week for the first years of my incarceration to one man after another, some men's prison, uh, share how their lives and their families had unraveled in such devastating ways through cocaine use. Um, I could no longer ward off that. I had to take it in and I had to embrace it. And then I had to really deal with the devastation around uh, realizing the amount of harm I'd been causing um, through my. Uh, uh, ignorance and my very selfish uh, decisions and my confused decisions. So I had to embrace that. And really, uh, what I came to understand, you know, you could say the spiritual path starts anywhere, and I certainly felt I'd been on one for a long time. Uh, and you could, some people might say, well, we're all stumbling toward the light on some level. But for me, it really began there where I developed this crystal clear and powerful longing to, at the very least, just cause no more harm. Mm. If I could do anything else in my life that just caused no more harm. And that burned in me like a fire. The other thing that continued to burn in me as a hot fire was being able to leave my son, who was growing up without his dad and had moved back to Peru with his mother, um, some other legacy than just his dad went to prison. Uh, much less his dad died in prison because I had no surety that I would survive my time. And I saw many men dying there. I was caring for men who were dying. and And so... So that was kind of that kind of characterized my time. Um, early on in, in 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 my time, I was incarcerated from '85 to '99, 14 years. And uh, uh, around 1989, I started the, the Prison Dharma Network because there was a growing interest uh, of prisoners all over the country in Buddhism and meditation and things like that. And they were reaching out to meditation groups and Buddhist sanghas around the country, but nobody knew what to do with it because you know, Buddhism had not organized and people were new in this country and uh, you know, they didn't know anything about prison ministry, whereas Christianity had been deeply involved in prison ministry for a long time. So uh, I developed 
people had known me. I'd published uh, quite a few articles, and people knew about me, and they started sending letters to me, thinking I'd know what to do with them. So I started this ministry of, of pack, putting together packages of articles. I worked in the education department and had access to a copy machine, so I'd copy articles out of Shambhala Sun or New Age mm-hmm. Journal or Yoga Journal and things like that, put together a little package, send it off to a prisoner. I could do that with state prisons. I couldn't do it with federal prisoners. And they didn't really like it, but I could get away with it. And But I quickly realized this was way more than something I could do. And so I figured out how to start a nonprofit from inside. I found somebody on the outside to kind of be my mail drop and started Prison Dharma Network and raised a couple thousand from friends and families and got it going. And and that grew to where today we are the national, and we've just recently changed the name from Prison Dharma Network to Prison Mindfulness Institute. Um, today we are the National and International Association for this kind of work, mindfulness-based work in prisons, transformative work, contemplative-based work in prisons, as well as with at-risk youth and, and juvenile corrections and community corrections. And today we have over 190 organizations that are part of our network and several thousand members who are actively involved in going into prisons or or corresponding with prisoners. And so we are the movement builder and we resource that field, that network, and then we also do our own direct work. Um, Mm -hmm. And so uh, I want to focus a little bit on... uh, um, the approach we take, we and this will start going into the restorative justice focus here. Um, we developed a, a, a model, especially over, I've been out for 13 years now, and I, and I want to uh, give voice here to my colleague Kate Crisp, who's the executive director of, of uh, prison, now Prison Mindfulness Institute. Uh, Kate had been doing prison work for a couple of years before I was released. She was a member of the Shambhala community based in Boulder, where I released to, and, and uh, so she contacted me, and, and shortly after I was really, she got involved with the organization, and we, we managed to get a little funding, open up an office, and we got started. So Kate has been involved for the last 13 years and helped build the organization into what it is today. So I, I really feel Kate um, almost deserves co-founder status at this point. Mm-hmm. So I, I just really want to name her. Uh, but over the last um, 13 years, we've developed a model that we call integral transformative justice. And that's the alternative that we uh, promote as an alternative to the dominant retributive justice uh, Mm -hmm. model, punishment-oriented model in this country. And I'll just quickly say the components of it. Integral because we take uh, we believe in taking a fully integral approach to to change and transformation. So working at the uh, level of body, mind, uh, emotions, heart, and so forth, uh, spirit, you know, so fully holistic, transpersonal approach. We've been very influenced by the work of Ken Wilber, who's a colleague, so we've kind of constructed some of our programming around his four-quadrant model, which is just one aspect of his uh, integral model. That means we're going to look at the interiority of human life, both at the individual and the collective level, as well as the exterior, the behavioral, both at the individual and the collective level, the systems level. And uh, and we want to make sure we're working at the level of body, mind, heart, and spirit, and so forth. So, And we want to do that in, an in not just make sure we're covering those areas, but actually we're doing it in an integrated and a synergistic way. So that's the integral part. That's very briefly stating that. And then transformative justice. Uh, many of you uh, are probably aware of the term transformative justice. It's, it's a little more common in Canada, New Zealand, and Australia where they use that term as well as restorative justice. It's not as commonly used here in the U.S. But I want to make a distinction uh, between, let's say, three models. The, the dominant retributive justice model, the restorative justice model, and the transformative justice model. So first we'll look at how do they view crime, criminal behavior, or, or, or uh, harm, um, and uh, various tragedies and this kind of thing, but in specific criminal type um, harm and behaviors. So from the retributive justice viewpoint, it's a violation of the state. And so the whole thing is an adversarial contest, uh, an issue between the offender and the state. Um, with restorative justice, it's a violation of people and relationships. It's a tear in the community fabric. With transformative justice, it is uh, transformative justice is everything by uh, restorative justice is, and then uh, some some added to it. So transformative justice sees crime as a violation of people and relationships, which offers an opportunity for transformation and healing for all. 
for the for the offenders, for the victims, and for the families and communities they come from. So that's going a bit further. Now, great restorative justice programs, I want to say, are transformative in nature. But still, mm-hmm. I think we can, make this, we can make this distinction. Then we'll look mm-hmm. at where do these models see the problem as beginning? Well, retributive justice, it begins with a crime. You know, nothing kicks in until there's a crime. When the crime kicks in, then uh, the, the system, the state, addresses it with this retributive, punishment-oriented uh, approach. How about restorative justice? Where does the problem begin? Again, primarily with the crime. The crime happens, and we're going to bring to it a more healing, more restorative approach to working with uh, offenders, to working with victims, to working with the community, a more healing, restorative approach to working with that situation. But it doesn't really kick in until there's a crime. With transformative justice, it begins with the causes and that out of which the crime arises. And both the individual causes on the part of the offender and the the cultural, systemic, societal causes out of which it arises. So again, taking that deeper perspective. Then the third aspect is looking at what's the goal of these models. Well, retributive stuff just talks about public safety, obviously, punishment, deterrence, uh, even though the research shows that it's not really a deterrent factor, and ostensibly rehabilitation, and that's primarily lip services paid to that. Then, all right, how about restorative justice? What's the goal of restorative justice? Well, also public safety. And then restoring wholeness to the victim and responsibility to the offender is often the way it's languaged in many restorative justice models. Then with transformative justice, also public safety, healing and transformation for the victims, the offender, and the community. Crime prevention, because we actually want to look into the causes and conditions out of which crime arise and an overall increase in social capital and social cohesion. So the goals run a bit deeper. So, and again, I want to say there are restorative justice programs out there that would meet the criteria of what I'm describing as transformative justice, but not all. Restorative circles, perhaps, and um, I I love that you're bringing this up, too, and and so poignantly uh, distinguishing these because it is important for us to to understand and delineate, and, and it's very interesting too, Fleet, and I'd be curious to hear what you think. Um, I'm noticing that we're transforming even in, our, in, in the definition of restorative justice um, to be much bigger than you know, some of the packaging that has come before, which has been really important. Um, for, you know, I mean, I have all the respect for Howard Zare and his work as the grandfather of restorative justice, but um, I also know that, you know, the, the tr- transformation part and the, um, the sustaining part, like, for example, in Seattle, mm-hmm. we have people who are calling community together to do um, practice circles on a regular basis, and so are our other communities. So it's, it's very... Um, it's a powerful time to be witnessing people really wanting to get to it and to, to keep it to keep it going, even though um, it, it, even though there may not be a crime at hand. There's no uh, there's no um, desert uh, or, or there's no um, how do I say it lack of conflict, so to speak, mm-hmm. in our daily yeah. lives. So oh, absolutely, thank and of course, you. restored. Well, thank you. And of course, the restorative justice model is being brought not only to criminal behavior, but into schools and for mediation and, and lots of complex situations. And again, I know restorative, the whole restorative justice movement is, is an evolving movement. So I, and again, I, I don't mean to give short shrift to it here, but I think these distinctions are helpful regardless of where any program is on this, uh, right. on this spectrum. And, and the important point I want to make here is that in many restorative justice models, we're basically saying to the offender, uh, we're inviting you, offender, to repair your relationship with the community, but pretty much on the community's terms. And we may have a, a restorative justice circle or restorative justice council or board or panel, and we have members of the community standing in and representing the community and the victims. And we're saying to you, you know, we, we're looking for uh, remorse on your part. We're looking for acknowledgement. We're looking for you to, to own the harm you've caused. And we're, and we're looking for you to make a contract with the community on possibly efforts to repair the harm, uh, efforts to change your behavior, 
um, to not continue those behaviors and so forth. And through that, um, uh, you can, uh, that kind of accountability, you can um, restore your relationship to the community. And there's a little, the, the victim is kind of given uh, primacy in a certain way. And, and understandable, because the victim's been harmed. I mean, it's very understandable. But mm-hmm. what, what you have to look at is many offenders that, so, you know, to, for lack of a better language, many people that have committed offense and come into the process, we're asking them to enter into an empathic relationship with the people they've caused. Well, unless they have a capacity for empathy, they, they don't have that capacity. They do or they don't. And so they can mimic that, or they can tell us what we want to hear, or they can go through the motions, um, because sometimes this is an alternative to some other kind of punishment. But for a person to have a genuine capacity for empathy, they have to receive empathy. And many of these, many people who cause harm and, and commit offenses um, have been victims their entire lives mm-hmm. of all kinds of abuse. Mm-hmm. And they've ne- no one's ever listened to their pain. No one's ever given them empathy for their pain. And they got not as much unconditional love that most of us got growing up, or maybe very little or none. They grew up in chaotic environments full of abuse and trauma. And so uh, we're asking something of them that they may not have a capacity to give. So... And although certainly it makes sense to have a primacy on the needs of the victim and the community and so forth, but if we really want to prevent crime, we have to be very interested in that offender and the healing, the genuine healing of that offender. That's one thing. So we have to be interested in, in what this, these behaviors came out of and, and providing the opportunity for healing. That Secondarily, we have to be willing to look at the societal causes and conditions out of which it arose. And if we're not doing anything, to address, to address how unresourced these communities are and the, and the poverty and the crime and the racism and, and the level of trauma in these communities, then it's great that we're taking a restorative and a healing-based post, but we're just dealing that with a never-ending wave of crime. We can't expect it to really reduce unless we're going in to do things to, to build greater resilience and social capital in these communities. So that's this, trans, this, this idea of transformative, that, that we need to look into who is this offender and what healing do they need and what is their community and what healing and what resources that community needs if we're really interested in real crime prevention and real public safety. That's the point And, here. and so on that note, why are we so afraid? To, to see, because I, I can see that in, in our, especially in this Western um, system of ours, we, we seem to think that something like transformative justice would be soft on uh, the offender. Can you speak to that? Well, that's really the whole uh, mindset behind the retributive justice model at all. And we think, not only do we think being interested in their healing is, might be soft on the offender, um, and, you know, we, you have to remember that, that our, our penal system and, uh, and the field of penology has deep roots in a philosophy known as positive shaming that goes all the way back to the, uh, what were they called, the blocks in the town square they used to be people in. You know, the notion that you can actually uh, coerce human beings into better behavior through shame. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's completely false. And it's scientifically proven to be false. It's, it's shaming, it's toxic, and it does nothing but produce trauma. So, um, but we have these ideas are still very strong in our society. And we, we essentially live in a shame-based society where even in the most benevolent circumstances, we're still trying to enculturate our children to a coercive way through our, ed- through our family and our educational culture and systems where, where the choice is, you know, uh, conform or, or be ostracized on mm-hmm. some level. And that, you know, and for many people, fortunately, it's delivered in a fairly benevolent way, and many people not so benevolent. But ultimately, until we embrace alternative models like the Montessori schools and Steiner schools and other types of approaches to education, you know, this is on a continuum. And, of course, the people that grow up in the worst circumstances are, are in, the, in the worst thing. The other part about the societal thing is, of course, you know, our liberal and conservative politics, you know, the conservative movement doesn't want to hear anything about societal conditions because they think that's a slippery slope away from personal responsibility. And, of course, liberals and progressives don't want to hear a whole lot about personal responsibility because they think it's a slippery slope away from looking at, at uh, causes and conditions. And, obviously, we have to look at the whole thing. 
you know, when I work, when I go in and work with people inside, both juveniles and adults, I make it very clear to them that I get, you know, where they came from and, um, and the struggles they've had and what they've been up against on many, many levels. And I get the injustices of the system they've been processed through and the injustice of the system they're living in. I make sure that they get that I get that. At the same time, my basic message is, look, here you are, and your only way out is to take radical 100% responsibility for where you are and figuring out how to get yourself to where you want to be. And any energy you put blaming on anything is a complete waste of time and a distraction from your own transformation. So it's a, it's a dual message. I mean, I want to work to make it better out there for everyone and to be producing less crime. But for an individual, the only, the only way out is through what, what we promote as radical responsibility. Uh, let me say just a little bit about our, you asked about the mindfulness-based emotion, the MBEI approach. Could, could I, I just pause for a moment, though, please? I, I really want to make sure people know um, the, your websites, and I just want to mm-hmm. say a few words and welcome people who are arriving late. So just, just oh, sure. hold that for mm-hmm. just a moment. It's mm-hmm. wonderful to have you with us tonight, Fleet. So for those of you who are arriving a little bit late tonight, we're talking with Fleet Mahal, who is the founder of the Prison Mindfulness Institute and also um, the Center for Mindfulness and Corrections. And I'd just like to point out those websites tonight so that you can be sure to find them if you haven't already. Uh, for the Center for Mindfulness and Corrections, you can go to Mindful Corrections, that's plural, mindfulcorrections.org. And then also the Prison Mindfulness Institute is prisonmindfulness.org. That's prisonmindfulness.org. Fleet also has a website um, of his own work. And Fleet, that's just fleetmall.org. Is that true? Uh, Or is it dot com? Dot com. Dot com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And we, you know, we, we've covered so much ground tonight uh, already, and there's some places that I would like to go to with our conversation um, mm-hmm. that would like to make sure that you all know, too, uh, to press 1 on your keypad um, between now and the end of our call tonight. Just go ahead and press 1 on your telephone keypad if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to make tonight. And Fleet, um, at some point, I'd really love to hear, too, uh, you share more about uh, the Center for Mindfulness and Corrections, given to me it's very compelling that you're doing work not only with prisoners but also with correctional officers and employees of that system. And to me, um, what's so rich about that is that as you're saying tonight, there's, um, uh, there's a, a need for us to recognize that the victim um, you know, the, the perpetrator is also a victim. Um, oftentimes, the, the people who become a part of the employee base of the correctional system have a deep-seated wound as well. So looking at mm-hmm. some of these deeper aspects of our wounding cycles and of, of how we transform them is such a key aspect of this, in my opinion. So I'm, I'm really grateful yeah. that we've gone there tonight thus far. Um, so, so jump back in where you were going with, with everything and tell us a little bit about um, MBEI. I think that's where you were going. And, yes, um, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll talk about that in term, both in terms of our work with uh, prisoners and at-risk youth as well as with staff. So, right. And just so people know, the Prison Mindfulness Institute website is for our work and our programs for uh, incarcerated youth and adults and for at-risk youth as well as adults in post-release and community corrections. The Center for Mindfulness in Corrections site is for our work with staff. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, the, the model we've evolved over the years, I mean, integral transformative justice is kind of our view. It's our philosophy. It's our model. The programmatic model we've developed is grounded in what, what we call mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. People may have heard of MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, developed by John Kabat-Zinn, which is probably the most mainstreamed form of mindfulness and meditation in the country, primarily in the healthcare field. 
Um, we developed uh, this, uh, we were one of the originators of this term, but I think there are a number of people around the country who started using this term at about the same time, mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. Actually, Stanford and Google have developed a program for Google called Search Inside Yourself, uh, which is a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum. So, and really that's what, how we describe the work, the programs we're doing both for prisoners and for staff at this point. So obviously mindfulness training is about, uh, is, is about uh, cultivating uh, attention stabilization, the ability to focus, the ability to concentrate, and over time developing the capacity to have a, a kind of a unconditional non-judgmental awareness in which you allow your experience to come and go as it will so that uh, you're moving through greater stages of relaxation and, uh, and healing by releasing things while at the same time uh, being in a state of uh, relaxed attentiveness which improves performance on just about any kind of human endeavor. Um, basic mindfulness training, basic mind training, which the most basic part of that is you, you, you place your attention on something and what you notice is the mind starts to wander and you bring it back. The mind wanders and you bring it back. The most common kind of mindfulness training is to work with the breath. And uh, you try to keep your focus on the breath. The mind wanders, you bring it back, so forth. Um, thoughts come and go, you let them be, and over time uh, there's all kinds of development to the most profound spiritual depth that can happen with that kind of training. But at the very least, it helps improve attention, stabilization, focus, concentration, and things like that, and performance across the full spectrum of human endeavors, including sports and all kinds of things where it's being used today. Um, the emotional intelligence, we draw a lot on Daniel Goleman's model. Uh, we, we really look at all the different models of emotional intelligence, but we use his primarily as a frame. So he has four quadrants in his model. You have self-awareness, which is cultivating greater self-awareness around what kind of makes us tick, our own uh, psychological uh, function, our emotional triggers, our reactivity, what drives uh, our core beliefs that may be unconscious, what drives our attitudes and beliefs and behaviors and so forth, the way we respond to life and the way we frame our experiences. So developing a much greater self-understanding, self-knowledge, self-awareness around all that, and through that then having a greater capacity to self-manage and also learning very specific skills for self-management, like learning how to untrigger yourself when you become emotionally activated or triggered, how to what we call state shift or down-regulate, how to get yourself out of that fight, flight, or freeze response in the reptilian part of the brain back into the full access to our brain and, and, uh, and, uh, and developing greater resiliency, which is kind of like you've got more lead in your seat. So it's like those dolls that you know you push over they come right back up because they have a heavy lead in the bottom so you're developing that kind of resiliency um, uh, in, in within the challenges of life through that kind of training um, so self-awareness and self-management you're able to keep putting yourself back in the most resource place you can where you're going to make the best decisions and and operate in the most skillful way you know how in life and in relationships then the other two quadrants are social awareness where we become more and more aware of others feelings and needs so we're developing greater em empathy and ability to read others and relate to others and understand others and then through that greater capacity for for relationship management to become more skillful in our relationships so uh, we mar we uh, marry mindfulness training with the emotional intelligence training in a fully integrated way. All the emotional intelligence training we do has a mindfulness component and is delivered within a mind training context. So you could talk a lot more about that, but that's basically the context of it. And obviously it's going to help us be more skillful and make better decisions at anything we're doing. It's going to help us bounce back more quickly from difficult circumstances. It's going to inoculate us against PTSD. It's going to help us recover from trauma more quickly, all these kinds of things. So our program, we have a Path of Freedom program, which is a curriculum that we developed and we piloted it for six years at a maximum security juvenile facility in Colorado. And then we developed an adult version of it. And now we're, we're developing, we've developed a staff training based on, on basically on the same ideas. We're also doing a training staff in a skill set called motivational interviewing developed by Bill Miller and his, and uh, a colleague. It's an international movement, um, which is um, used a lot in healthcare and behavioral health and now a lot in probation and parole where primarily where there's someone working with a client caseload and doing one-on-one -on -one interactions with someone trying to help them facilitate behavioral change. 
away from high risk uh, behaviors, uh, you know, unwanted pregnancies, smoking, uh, high risk HIV behaviors, drug addiction, alcohol, you know, these kind of things. So it's become a, um, a big model out there in the world and it's starting to become a, considered a best practice in probation and parole. And we've developed a mindfulness-based approach to both using and, and training people in MI and a mindfulness-based approach to the clinical use of MI. So that's, that's kind of the spectrum of our staff training. We moved here, I'll just briefly say where that's taking place and then we'll open it back up to your questions or others. Um, we started Prison Mindfulness Institute Prison Dharma Network 23 years ago, and our original big goal was to have Buddhist programs uh, and meditation and uh, and meditation from other traditions widely available uh, uh, throughout the prison system, primarily through faith-based programs uh, that operate usually in prison chapels and jail chapels and so forth. And that's largely been accomplished uh, by creating this movement over the last 22 years. Um, it's, it's not universally, but it's really widely. There are hundreds of programs in prisons and jails, state and federal, local, around the country. Yoga programs, meditation programs of all sorts being delivered by lots of wonderful people. A lot of it's Buddhist inspired, but some of it's inspired more by the kind of Hatha Yoga Hindu. And then there's some Christian centering prayer and some city yoga and some different things like that. Um, so, but unfortunately, that faith-based work is never going to impact more than five, ten percent of the prison population because uh, the rest of the prison population simply don't access programming through the chapel. So, we want to get secular-based, sec, completely secular, mindfulness-based interventions of various kinds, like John Kabat-Zinn's MBSR, like mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral training, like our mindfulness-based emotional intelligence work, into the mainstream of corrections in all educational programming, drug and alcohol treatment, pre-release, post-release programs, and so forth. And we want to get it into staff development training and, and correctional leadership training and, and staff wellness training and so forth. To do all that, it has to be evidence-based, just like in medicine. It's got to have research behind it saying it works and how it works and why it works. So we moved to Rhode Island two and a half years ago because uh, this system, it has eight adult facilities and one juvenile facility, all contiguous on, in one big kind of government campus along with some mental health and other stuff, um, all in one place on, in, a, in a city on the south side of Providence, Rhode Island called Cranston. And we had good connect. We already had a group in our network that was been teaching meditation and stress management there for four years, and we had some connections to the upper levels of management. So we moved here. It was a bit of a gamble, but we did, and it's really paid off. And we've converted all the existing meditation programs that were there, there were just two really, uh, into our Path of Freedom curriculum. And now we have, right now we have six classes a week going in men's medium, men's minimum, and women's medium facilities. We'll soon have a class in women's minimum, and eventually we'll go into men's maximum, and, uh, uh, and eventually into the juvenile facility. Um, these programs, uh, it's a 14-week program in the fall, 14-week program in the spring. The first week is uh, assessments. Um, uh, they do a, a, a battery of scales measuring emotional intelligence, mindfulness, state trade anxiety or stress, uh, self-transcendence, criminal sentiment scales, things like that. So all that pre-testing, then there's the 12 weeks of our 12-unit uh, Path of Freedom curriculum, and then the final week is post-testing and graduation. And uh, we're doing that with, with every program, and we're also uh, able to track uh, institutional behavior and incidents and so forth prior to the program, during program, and post-program. And for those prisoners who are being released, we'll start tracking re-arrest or recidivism rates and other outcomes uh, uh, upon their release, uh, drug use or, or lack, lack thereof and so forth. So. Uh, we're, we, we have that and we're, we have a research team from Harvard and Brown University, University of Rhode Island, Rhode Island College that's conducting all this research. Um, right now we're doing a pre-release program. We're doing a concentrated Path of Freedom curriculum. It's 12 units. We're doing it in one month, three classes a week, and it's also research-based in this way. And we'll follow them for one month after the release because it's just a pilot program to get pilot data as part of a grant proposal to the National Institutes of Health for a five-year study where we would run over five years about 500 male and female prisoners through a pre-release intensive like that and track them for a year after release. So a lot going on. It's all research-based. And the goal is to um, be able to demonstrate effect 
uh, publish those uh, resources. Uh, we're, we've started a pilot program with 23 probation officers and correctional counselors. These are union but non-uniformed correctional staff, and they're being trained in mindfulness-based emotional intelligence and motivational interviewing, and it's a nine-month program. It's a very comprehensive, intensive program, which is costing us quite a lot of money to deliver. And, um, and we're doing that for nine months. Also, we did, we, we did pre-testing with the 23 participants and another 60 correctional staff, and we'll do post-testing, and we hope to be able to publish the data from that as well. And, and this, uh, this, the Rhode Island Department of Corrections has already bought into, after that pilot, they want us to go in and train their whole probation and parole uh, department in this work if we can figure out how to get it funded. Um, so the other goal we have, besides being able to publish this research, to be able to show that this kind of training does create the impacts and the ultimate outcomes we're looking for, but we also want to get this kind of program throughout the Rhode Island system exposed to a, a large enough percentage of the inmate population and a large enough of the staff population and doing research around all that so we can begin to demonstrate that we're actually having a transformative effect on the whole system. And Rhode Island is a small state, a small system, but if we can demonstrate with evidence that kind of impact on a state system, that'll get national attention and then there's the opportunity to roll this out on a national level. So that's what we're doing here. That, I mean, that's very powerful work, and we know that um, the, the, the data will speak. And I, I'm confident you'll find that funding that you, you need for that project because it's very much needed. And I just wonder, um, Philippe, you know, given... Mo Molly, you're really now, breaking up. I don't know if that's true for everyone, but for me... Okay. Um, I hope this is better. I'm on a voice line, so I... I I'd like to ask you a question regarding how how you see the, the future of, of corrections. Of course, your work is amplifying the possibility of us transforming from uh, a retributive, punitive system to um, a system that is based in more humane practices and in, in uh, perhaps a worldview transformation as well. And I wonder um, if you might speak a bit too. I, know, I know that you've said before, um, especially, of course, in that brilliant tricycle interview, um, you talked about prisons being designed to kill the human spirit. And we've talked a lot tonight, again, about the retributive uh, paradigm. What do you see happening now and upcoming for the correction system and, of course, the, the domination of the, uh, the corporate industry? Um, places like uh, the Correctional Corporations of America and Geo Group and the profit that they're, they're turning uh, as a prison industrial complex. Do you see hope right. for the future? I, I do, and I'll tell you why. Um, um, first, first, I just want to mention that that mindfulness-based emotional intelligence type training that we're doing is what will allow correctional officers and professionals to actually work in a restorative, transformative justice way with the people right. who are incarcerated. Motivational interviewing also is very aligned with restorative justice principles in of itself. So, you know, this prison industrial complex has been growing for many years, uh, initiated with the, the, the drug war initiated by Richard Nixon and then further uh, uh, Ronald Reagan and continued by all presidents. And, and it became a self-perpetuating industry, which is not just the companies like uh, Wack and Hut and Correctional Corporation of America. It's, it's all, it's, because that accounts for like 5% of corrections in this country. It's the whole field of corrections. It's all the companies that build prisons, it's a, that sell goods and services to prisons. It's the guard unions. It's the telephone companies. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, including all the, the government-run prisons. The private prison thing is a small piece of that. I will say the private prison thing has been basically a failure in this country. Uh, you know, they, they, the basic idea is you come in and you, you replace the staff with uh, more poorly trained, less qualified staff. You give them less training. They're non-unionized. You reduce programming. You reduce costs. And you try to make a profit running a prison. And generally what they end up with is prison riots. Um, so it's pretty much of a failed experiment in this country. And those companies like Wack and Hutt and Correction Corporation of America, their growth curve is now uh, in the global south. That's where they're going. They, they're, they're moving into Latin America and Africa and places like that, uh, just like the tobacco companies have now gone offshore to, to continue to uh, develop their business. 
So um, m many people tend to associate the prison industrial complex with that corporate thing, but that's just a, a blip uh, in it, really. Um, and and uh, and, uh, and fortunately, uh, the corrections field is, even though there are some, some, some like states like Colorado, I think is still pursuing it, but in general, it's not the wave of the future in this country. Um, but, but that self-perpetuating industrial, that multi-billion dollar industry, of course, has lobbyists in state legislatures and federal, and they lobby for tough sentencing for no other purpose other than to grow their industry. And as, as many people know, the Guards Union in, Cal in California, for example, is the largest contributor to campaigns on both sides of the aisle, Democrat and Republican, and they basically control Sacramento, and they've undermined all efforts at, at criminal justice and corrections reform in California. So... Um, why do I see hope and light at the end of the tunnel? Because fortunately, this, there's two things that have happened. On the one hand, the states have run out of money. They've taken all the money they can out of health care and education at, from the primary to the university level, out of our infrastructure, out of Head Start programs, all the things that might keep people from going to prison. They've, they've downgraded our, our infrastructure of our roads and bridges. They've siphoned all the money they can pumped it into this business of warehousing human beings, and they're still, they finally run out. There's no more money. They've run out. So they're, they're being forced to downsize, and they're being forced to take a new look at what we're doing. Now, there are, have always been progressive people in connections, and most high-level, your, your regional directors, your national directors, your state directors, even your wardens, they tend to have master's degrees. Many have doctorates. They're educated. They tend to be more progressive. But it's really been driven by, by legislatures and the media and other policymakers have driven, and the business have fueled this thing. So as soon as there's an openness to doing a better job, there's lots of corrections professionals that really want to do a better job. So there's a new openness there. And I have colleagues like Rita Caruso, who's the director of the Michigan State Department of Corrections. They've closed eight facilities, and she got a law passed saying that one-third of the savings from closing those facilities has to go into community corrections, community programs designed to keep the released prisoners in the community. And she wears a flak vest all the time, but she's been able to work in a highly unionized state uh, and continue get to, continually gets up on her bully pulpit and preaches that, that prisons were never meant to be a jobs program for the community. Um, and that's not what they're about, and they've closed eight facilities. Unfortunately, they've offered consulting and advice to California, and California has ignored it, and they're going to have a big mess out there when they start releasing prisoners under court mandate. Um, but still, there's hope because there's a new openness. I'm working with the National Institute of Corrections, a U.S. Department of Justice agency, on a project we've been doing. We've been working on it for five, six years, gathering together the best research and the best thinkers in organizational development, innovation, transfer, corrections, and other fields, and looking at how can we transform this system. So we developed two goals. One is downsize it at least by half over the next 10 years, because to transform it, it's got to be downsized. It's way too big. The second is to transform the workforce in corrections, and that's a project that's going to take time, recruiting a different type of people into corrections, giving them different types of training, uh, restructuring the whole way that people advance in their careers in, in corrections, and so and a much more social work and, and uh, as well as security, but also a social work kind of orientation rather than this kind of paramilitary uh, commando orientation that's dominant among correctional officers now. And so there's a new openness to that. And at the same time, there's all this growing body of evidence on the impact of mindfulness training in the mainstream. And it's, and it's coming into health care and education, primary, secondary education, the military. There's a whole organization bringing mindfulness training into our armed forces, inoculating prisoners who are going overseas to Afghanistan uh, against PTSD, helping them recover when they get back. So there's a big body, and there's neuros, not just uh, psychosocial uh, research and literature, but there's actual, you know, M fMRI, uh, neuroscience, brainwave literature, huge bodies of proving that this stuff works and that it improves brain health and brain performance across every dimension. So those things are coming together where for the first time, you know, for 23 years, we've been lighting candles in the darkness, basically, at, while this industry just grew and grew. For the first time, we really see the possibility of real systems change. And, and, and I definitely believe it is possible. I believe it's inevitable. It's going to take a lot of hard work. And that's why we're doing the research, because having the evidence-based programming. But the last thing I'll say about that is that the real challenge we have, and this is not just in the field of corrections, but it's in all the mainstreaming of this kind of mindfulness-based interventions, is even once the evidence there and, the, and the, these fields are saying, yeah, we want this, 
it's developing the people to deliver it. No one, no, none of us in any fields have, have figured out yet how we're going to scale up quickly enough to deliver quality programs nationally. That's a real, it's a real challenge. But yes, I do see a lot of, I see a lot of hope for the future. Well, thank you. And uh, that, that brings me actually to a question that I think is really important for people like myself and all who are gathered here tonight. Um, you know, as common sort of citizens who are concerned and would like to plug in, is there a way to do that, fleet, with um, some of your trainings? How do people get plugged in here? And also, um, if you could also speak to any words of advice. Uh, there, there is somebody perhaps on this call tonight possibly that may be facing time inside a prison. Um, so if you could, could, could kind of close out tonight with those two things, that would be great. Yes, yeah, thank you. So um, one thing people can do is we offer, we, we, um, because we're trying to get this, our path of freedom, this mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum out there widely, we offer a webinar three times a year. It's, uh, it's a six session, six two-hour sessions over three weeks, and we do that uh, three times a year. You can find that on our website at prisonmindfulness.org. The next one is coming up, I think, in January. So we offer that three times a year, and we've had over 300 people, I think, go through that. And it introduces people to our curriculum, at least gets them started on the path of learning to deliver that curriculum. And many of the people on our webinars are already working in corrections or they're, or they're volunteers who are going into corrections delivering various types of programs. But that's a great way to get introduced to our work. You can also find on, our, on the Prison Mindfulness Institute website, uh, uh, there's a, a thing on there on our network where there's a searchable, searchable database that shows uh, most of the existing organizations in our network that have programs in prisons, state and federal prisons all over the country. So you can, you can look it up by state. You can look it up by uh, tradition, like a, a Zen or a Tibetan or Vipassana, different things. You can look it up in lots of different ways. And you can find out what's going on in your area and find out about an organization in your area that you could contact and possibly get involved with if you wanted to do that. Uh, we also can, someone who wants to start some kind of a program in an area where there, is, there are no currently existing programs, we have lots of materials available to help you figure out how to approach the institution, how to get a program started and so forth. And again, we, we offer this kind of training. I also travel around the country doing regional trainings in this work uh, on a regular basis, so, so that, that's, that's available as well. Um, the other thing I'll and and, and we're, we, we have our path of freedom uh, training exists in workbook form. We have the Path of Freedom um, uh, workbook for the participants, and then we have a Path of Freedom facilitator's guide for facilitators. So we have the materials. We publish these materials for people to use in programs, and some people use these as well on a correspondent basis with prisoners they're corresponding with. So you know, if there is anyone listening who uh, is looking at uh, serving time or has a family member who is looking at serving time, um, you know, the, you know when, when you do significant amounts of time in, in a correctional setting, you know, it kind of comes down to either the time does you or you do the time. And so one has to really get proactive about thinking, how can I use this time in a productive way for myself and how can I stay out of trouble while I'm in there? The primary way in which people get in trouble in, in prison settings, correctional settings, is they, they get involved in drug use, they get involved in gambling, or they get involved in sex. Those are the three things. Stay away from all of that. The other thing is idle time, hanging out, you know, hanging out in the TV rooms and that, just hanging out. That's where all the problems come up. So what you want to do is develop a program for yourself where you're taking that time to get physically fit, you're taking that time to continue your education, uh, whether at whatever level, uh, to pursue self-education and reading, uh, to, to make use of whatever, if you have substance abuse issues, to make use of whatever uh, programming there is to deal with that, uh, and just to make use of all the resources that they have there. And so, you know, you know, being busy really from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed, being busy with either whatever prison job you have, education, fitness, and all that. And if you keep yourself busy, you'll keep yourself out of trouble. And you'll use that time to, to really improve yourself. And you'll come out, you'll come out uh, uh, stronger, more resilient, and, and better educated to, uh, to accomplish what you want to accomplish in life. 
Uh, I would also really encourage uh, anyone to contact us and get a copy of our Path of Freedom book, to get a copy of uh, Dharma and Hell, uh, to get a copy of uh, another book we have called Sitting Inside, or uh, to get a reference to, uh, to the Human Kindness Foundation and get Bolazov's great book, We're All Doing Time. So there's these resources that are available. And one of our, our big ministries we're very dedicated to, we have a Books Behind Bars program, and we send books, send thousands of books every year to prisoners all over the country as well as to prison libraries. So, you know, prisoners can uh, write to us, their family members can write to us, and we'll, on a regular basis, we'll, we'll, send, uh, we'll send books and, and resources um, uh, to people who are in prison to give you tools to really use that time in a very healing and transformative uh, way for yourself and uh, to keep yourself out of safe and out of trouble. So, please, how did, uh, just one last thing that I think is really important, how did people uh, on the inside get a hold of you? Um, and is that possible? Like, is there a lifeline that this, this person might be able to um, create and then sustain while he's in, in, in the system? Yeah. Uh, do you want that actual address? Uh, that would be great if that's possible. Yeah, they write, they write to Prison Mindfulness Institute at uh, 11 South Angel Street at A-N-G-E-L-L, A-N-G-E-L-L, uh, Angel Street, uh, number 303, Providence, Rhode Island, uh, 02906, 02906. So again, that's 11 South Angel Street, A-N-G-E-L-L, number 303, Providence, Rhode Island, 02906. And they write to us there and uh, tell us what they're interested in, and, uh, and we'll send them books. Thank you very much.